Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray. Lord, we are um, indeed needful of you. We need your spirit to give us a great love for your word, an understanding of your word, to open our eyes so we would see the truth and open our ears so we would hear the truth, so we would receive it with repentance and joy, so that we would love it and live it out in a way that honors your gracious son, Lord, we are thankful, thankful for the opportunity to be a part of your church and to get into your word together and to come together and pray. And Lord, we pray that we would be especially attentive now as we consider what it means to be a church that has a culture of grace, that is motivated, driven by, in love with, rejoicing in, filled up with, overwhelmed by the gospel of the free grace of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if someone asked me what our philosophy of ministry at Sovereign Grace is, my answer would be to exalt in, rejoice in, proclaim, love, pray through, hope in and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone might say, that doesn't sound like a philosophy of ministry. And we would hope to do it in such a way, in such a manner, that we are centered on the cross of Christ to such a degree that we create a culture of grace in the church. And so if you ask me what our philosophy of ministry is, it would be that, the, that we believe that the Spirit empowers us to love and rejoice in and meditate on and just be overwhelmed by and on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that it creates a culture in this church of grace. Because here's the truth. Culture is shaped by what people love, and in some sense, what people love is shaped by culture. Isn't that true? For example, we hold high the preaching of the word. And so part of the culture of this church as a result of that is word-centeredness. We want to be saturated by the word in everything we do. We hold high the priority of prayer. And so we ask people, one of the only regular events we have is prayer every Sunday. And we ask you to come to that. 
And we hope that that shapes the culture of this church. We, um, on kind of a more side note, we value training men. We value seeing men trained for the purpose of loving their wife and their children well. Did I just get louder? Like immensely louder? Is that just me? No? Did I just get put on monitors or something? Okay, I'm wondering, why am I hearing myself so strong? It's like weird. If you understand the whole monitor thing, you would, I don't sing, so for me it just shocks me. All right. We value the training of men. We think that God has called men to the role of leading the church and their families. And so we value it. And you know what? You'll see if we have a, we have a men's event, you'll see a ton of men come out because that's becoming part of the culture of this church. We value developing leaders. We have 10 guys on a regular basis who show up for a very intense elder training class that lasts about 18 months. Eight of them are actually writing papers every month so that they can be trained, so that they can teach sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. And we've got 10 guys plus that want to get in the next class in a church of 100 and something people. That's insane. But we value that, and so it marks our culture. We have all sorts of other ancillary sort of things in our culture, don't we? We have a lot of people in here who really are into health food, right? They pass around books and drink unpasteurized milk and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and they're into it. And that could actually mark our culture. It would be a weird marking of our culture, but nonetheless, it could mark our culture, right? Because you value something, it gets a part of this body, and there you go. We have several people in here who value homeschooling. There are churches that almost are entirely predominated by homeschoolers. Did you know that? And their culture for their church is very much a homeschooling type of culture. We have people who value that. I hope that this does not become a church where homeschooling becomes the only godly way of ever parenting your children. I hope with all of my being that that's the case. Because what I don't want to do is be the next Galatian heresy, be the heresy of sovereign grace that we have added to the gospel homeschooling. Right? Although we value it, we have people in here who value it, and that's great. It will affect our culture, won't it? We have guys in here who value smoking cigars. So much so that I can't go to a men's event without feeling like I have to have a mask over my face. Like some addicts or something. You know, they're like Jay Gresham Machen. Have you ever heard of him? He's one of the early... um, Guys who left Princeton, he really is the guy who left the lead or led the leaving of Princeton to start what's called Westminster Theological Seminary. But he left Princeton because Princeton had thrown out the idea that the Bible was inerrant. And he talks in his biography about how his days at Princeton were glorious. And there was nothing more glorious, he says, than a a group of guys in a smoke-filled room talking about theology. I think our guys seem to believe that. He said that tobacco was actually a a help to Christian character. It made them more charitable toward one another. (laughs) We have guys in here on the flip side of charity who love cage fighting, right? (laughs) I'm serious. I hope we don't become a church where every time we have an issue, we just decide to have a cage fight. (laughs) Although, in some cases, I would be in favor of that over gossip if I had my choice. We got a problem with each other, we gossip. No, 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 how about this? We just set up a cage fight. We get in the octagon and get 
Anyways. The fact is that what we love shapes culture, and to a degree, culture shapes what we love. And we will be a culture with our own peculiarities at which I hope we will laugh. But ultimately, we want to be a church that is indelibly marked by a culture of grace because we, are lo- we love and are driven by and motivated by the gospel of grace. In other words, we want a church culture that is gospel-driven. For several years now, the idea of finding your purpose has become a major obsession. It's, it is what drives the culture of many churches. People want to know what their purpose is. And Rick Warren's books came on the scene, The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church. And both books, especially The Purpose Driven Life, hit the church and secular scene and caught fire. And people felt like, and I think they were right, someone was finally trying to distill, to help them distill the Bible's teaching into a coherent understanding of what their purpose is. Churches and people increasingly started talking about being purpose-driven. Many people commented on how the book opened with a sentence that shocked them. First sentence, first paragraph, first chapter, it's not about you. Suddenly, Rick Warren had distilled in one sentence and communicated what was once known to most Protestants as the first question and answer in a great Protestant catechism known as the Westminster Catechism. And the question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is absolutely countercultural in a society obsessed with how to exalt the happiness of self at any cost, isn't it? Suddenly, we're being reminded it's not about us, it's about God. And I am extremely, for those of you who thought I was going to get in a cage in the octagon with Rick Warren right now, you're wrong. I am extremely thankful that Rick Warren's book reminded us, reminded so many people of the truth that the end of our ministry, the purpose for what we do is the glory of God. So let me, understanding that, let me say two things. One, what I'm about to say is not a sermon that's critiquing Rick Warren or his books. I'm not going to use, I, I, excuse me, I am going to use them as an illustration of what I'm getting at because his books are almost universally known. I'm not trying to take a shot at the purpose-driven life or Rick Warren, who is a good brother in Christ. And who I think, honestly, would probably not disagree with the distinction that I'm about to make. So for those of you guys who would like to see me get in the octagon and have a theological cage fight with Rick Warren, you're going to be disappointed. Second, I am not simply trying to come up with a better word in order to start a new fad. We're going to be the gospel-driven church. Right? And I'm going to write a book. No. 
this isn't even my idea. It's not new. Frankly, ask anybody who's a pastor. All good preachers essentially reciprocate, go out and tell what they've heard from someone else. If you've got a guy who says he has a new idea that's never been talked about before, that is a guy you should be deeply concerned about. However, what I'm going to say doesn't just boil down to semantics. It isn't just word play. So with that said, the place where I think Rick Warren missed it and where I believe we miss it is or the heart of my disagreement with the books he wrote and the heart of my disagreement with my own, where my own heart leads is in the title. He believes the church and the Christian, according to the title anyways, should be purpose driven purpose driven our purpose is he is right our purpose is to glorify god and enjoy him forever he's correct and he goes on to say that we should be driven by that purpose and i think on that note he's wrong i think he's definitely correct Now, mind you, I say I think he's wrong, and I think if he heard me, he'd probably agree on this. I think he's definitely correct that our ultimate purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is no doubt he is right about that. However, I think he's incorrect that this purpose is what should drive us. And I use this illustratively because I think we believe that what should motivate us I pick on him, not pick on him, but to get out a word, I believe what we think should drive us or motivate us or push us forward in ministry is the glory of God. And what I'm telling you is, I don't think that's true. I think what we should be driven by, motivated by, pushed forward by in ministry is the gospel of grace. I'm contending that we should be a gospel-driven church and a gospel-driven people. If I could tweak his title, right? If I could tweak his title, I would call it the purpose-directed church, the purpose-directed life. I wouldn't have a problem with that. And you're thinking, oh, man, the poor people who have to pick songs for being sung and run them by Chad, right? I mean, seriously, our poor musicians, they send me the song Indescribable. And uh, I said, yeah, but it says, we start off saying Indescribable, right? You guys know that song? right? Indescribable. And then the rest of the song describes him. So I don't, we just negated the title and the first word of the song. Anyways. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, Randy and Nate and all the others who are picking songs. Why would I say I would tweak that word? And why do I think it's not just about tweaking a word? When we use the phrase driven, we're talking about what motivates us, what gives us passion. Driven equals motivation. I believe it is biblical to assert we are driven by the gospel or by the mercy and grace of God. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How does he live his life? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what drives Paul. When I talk about being directed, I'm talking about what our 
goal or purpose is. What's the end? What are we going after? What's our direction? Our goal or our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, the gospel motivates us, the gospel motivates us or drives us, and the glory of God directs our passion. That's the difference between law and gospel. The law is God's gracious tool of directing believers, but the gospel is what motivates us to keep the law. Apart from the gospel, what does the law do? It reveals our sin and condemnation, our hopelessness, our helplessness. In the context of the gospel, in the context of the gospel, the law is God's gracious directing of our lives. The gospel of God's grace motivates us, and the end of glorifying him directs our actions. In other words, we could have all this passion and motivation, and it could be directed nowhere, right? God gives us all this passion and motivation, and then no one comes along and disciples us and tells us, hey, you know what? I know you love the gospel. I know you love Jesus. I know there's something God's done in you by the power of his spirit. But if someone doesn't come along and say, now let me show you how you direct that. Let me show you God's commands, his law, the the first and foremost, love God and love one another. Let me show you that so that that newfound passion, joy, motivation gets directed in the right way. It's a command to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a command. Commands do not give us, hear this, law does not give us the power to keep law. The gospel does. So it's, it's enough for me to say, um, you know, I'm picking on the semantics of some book title. That isn't my point. You might be thinking to yourself, directed, driven, what's the difference? It's the difference between living the life of a frustrated legalist and being a joyful, obedient servant of Christ. That's the difference. Paul was driven by the gospel. Look at what he says in Romans 1. Start there. Romans 1, he is talking about what he's given to do. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is he set apart for? The gospel of God. And he lays out what that gospel is. And look what he says in verse 5. It's talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom? It's through Christ we have received grace. And that word there, um, if I break it down, is really the grace of apostleship here. But Paul's talking about himself. This is an editorial plural. He's speaking of himself. In other words, what he's saying is, through whom I've received grace, the grace of apostleship, to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. I've received grace so that I could do what? So that I could take his name to all the nations. Hear that? So that I could bring them to faith in Christ. Grace came to me and drives me, commands me to take the gospel to the nations. So he would be glorified. Look what he goes on and says here. Um, In Romans chapter 12, he's laid out the gospel. Keep your hand there in Romans 1. Romans chapter 12, he has laid out the gospel for 11 chapters. 
before he ever really gives you a command. There are a couple of places where Paul throws commands in in the first 11 chapters, but almost none at all. I mean, it is minuscule. And then from 12 on, he starts giving all these commands. In light of this, do this, do this, do this. In light of this incredible gospel that I've laid out for you, in light of the grace of God that is freely given to you by faith in the, in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, in light of that, do this. And look what he says in 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do you hear that? What is he grounded in? I have preached to you the gospel for 11 chapters. In light of that truth, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that I've told you about. Offer your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. In chapter 1, in verse 14, when he says this, I'm under obligation. What does he mean? I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. What is the obligation? Does Paul owe God a debt? No. Paul's debt has been paid in full by the death of Jesus Christ. He knows that. So what's the obligation? What's the debt that he has? The debt is that Paul recognizes that he owes a debt to other people. Why? Because he shares a common plight with them. He was a sinner. He had no hope, but he was forgiven and counted righteous through faith in Christ. His debt was paid, and he understood that if he truly understands the grace he's received, then he's indebted to other men to tell them of that grace of that gospel. So he's under obligation. So because of the grace he's received, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome for I am not ashamed. That's like saying I am proud of what? The gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. Why is it the power of God for salvation? For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And why do you need the righteousness of God given to you in the gospel? For the wrath of God, verse 18, has been revealed. Right? Against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. That's us. We need the gospel. We need the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is against us for our sin. And we need to be counted righteous. And the only way you're counted righteous is by faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's not ashamed of. That's what he's proud of. That's what brings salvation to all who believe. That is why he feels like he needs to tell other people about it. Does that make sense? Why he's eager to preach the gospel to those also who are in Rome. When Paul's instructing Timothy, and you don't have to turn here, I just want you to hear this. When he's instructing Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 8 through 10, he comes back to the same gospel motivation. He says this. He says, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Listen, for, to this end, what's the end or the goal? Godliness. To this end, we toil and strive. Why? Because. Hear that? What's the end? What's the goal they go after? 
holiness. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Do you hear what motivates him? Timothy, pursue holiness because our hope is set on God who's the Savior. It's undoubtedly true that Paul's motivation, Paul's approach to life and ministry is directed by the purpose of seeing God's name exalted in all nations. And it is the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of Christ's name that directs his motivation and, by the way, is our purpose or mission or vision. It's the direction that we as a church are moving. That's the direction we're going. Our vision or our mission is our purpose. It's the direction we're moving. We have a vision to bring all peoples to the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. We want to see them all rejoice in Jesus. However, we are not, I want you to hear this, we are not driven by our vision. We are driven to our vision. We are driven to our vision by the gospel. That's what motivates us. I'm saying that what creates a culture of grace, the culture we want here, what creates a culture of grace is a church whose vision, ministry, direction is motivated by the promise of the free grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what creates a culture of grace in the church. It is us being deeply in love with, rejoicing in, being thankful for the gospel that creates a culture of grace in the church. Some of you may say that's nice, but how does that difference look? How does it actually play out? I mean, Chad, it's nice to say that. That seems like a great concept. Who would be against the gospel motivating us, right? But how does that change the way we do anything? I think it changes our approach in three ways, and here's what they are. Three ways it changes our approach. One, it changes our approach to preaching and corporate worship. Changes our approach. And I put preaching into corporate worship. Frankly, I could just say it changes our approach to corporate worship. Because preaching is just a part of corporate worship. Singing is a part of corporate worship. Reading of the word, as Jason did earlier, is a part of corporate worship. Praying is a part of corporate worship. Communion is a part of corporate worship. Offering is a part of corporate worship. Preaching is a part of corporate worship. And it changes our approach to it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. How does it change our approach to preaching and corporate worship? How does it change it? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now today, it is quite popular for preachers to spend the majority of their time giving you principles for better living. And principles for better living are helpful. They are good. 
However, principles, principles for better living will not cause you, will not motivate you, will not drive you to actually live better. Being saved by, reconciled to, in a relationship with the person of Jesus will change you. He's the only one who can change your heart and motivate you to keep those principles. And this is necessary for believers, not just unbelievers. So yeah, you'll see principles taught from this pulpit, for sure. Telling you some this morning. But more than that, you will hear me and you will hear others relentlessly, constantly, continuously, repetitively preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we believe ultimately that corporate worship, that prayer, should be shaped by a person, not by principles. Should be directed to, motivated by our love for a person, not our love for a set of principles. You will start after you hear me relentlessly preaching the gospel week after week. You'll start to feel like those in the church of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther who asked, how long, Martin, until you move on from the gospel? To which he replied, we will keep preaching this until you stop needing to hear it. We're serious about this, and we have structured our entire worship service around the gospel. Do you know that? The way we've structured it. Um, For example, we start off with Jason, really. We have a song um, of worship that's, that's focused on the glory of God and who he is, and then Jason comes up, and he reads a passage, or some other person he's trained to do it, and he reads a passage, and he starts off talking about the glory of God and who God is and how holy he is. You ever notice that? And he prays in light of that. And then he moves to a passage. I don't know if you guys watch this rhythm. It's intentional. He moves to a passage talking about the law and the righteous requirement of God and how high it is and how we violate it and we're sinners and how we need grace. And then he goes to silent confession and says, it's time for you to repent and confess. It's silent. And then he moves from there into the promise of the gospel. So he reads a passage from Scripture takes us to the promise of the gospel because he does not want us to dwell on the fact that we're worms yes indeed the bible says that we're worms but he doesn't want us to dwell there he wants us to recognize that and then see that where our view where our gaze is supposed to be cast is not on our sinfulness but on his glory his graciousness what he has accomplished and so he moves to the promise of the gospel And he prays. We sing a couple songs rejoicing in the promise of the gospel. I preach. Then we take communion so that after you feel any conviction, any guilt, you can see the objective declaration of the promise that Jesus broke his body and spilled his blood for you. And you can take that knowing that soon he will return so you can rejoice with him forever. And we move through that, singing many more songs, worshiping him, responding to him. And we put the offering toward the end. The reason we put the offering toward the end is so that in no way, shape, or form do you think you contribute to this. It's your response at the end. So we shaped the whole service like that. We are so serious about communicating the gospel. We choose our songs based on this conviction. Do you know that? 
I, like I said, our poor music leaders, they send me songs. I think Nate sends me songs, and he wonders, what words is he going to pick apart? He just told me this last week he's nervous to send me songs, right? Because he just assumes in advance they're going to be turned down. And I said, well, Nate, send me better songs then, and you won't get them turned down so much. No, I, I, I didn't really say that. Frankly, I am far less concerned with how much we like the genre of the music or how effective the music is at making me feel a certain way, although I do, I do think those issues should be considered, I'm far, more, or far less concerned about them than I'm, I am with the message in the songs we sing. I told Nate, in fact, at lunch the other day, don't listen to the songs before you read them. First read them and answer the question, would I consider this an acceptable prayer? Does this make me want to exalt God and exult in or rejoice in God and the gospel? If it does, then listen to it. And if the music accompanying it is bad, then change the music accompanying it. So there's a reason why some of these hymns have endured for so long and why so many of them that are being written that are newer or updated with music now that are newer are, are enduring and spreading through the church. It's because they speak of the gospel. Just think of the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You guys have heard these verses? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. Right? Who made an end to all my sin. When you just read that, doesn't it make you want to sing? To rejoice, to exult in God? That's the kind of songs we want to choose. Because they rejoice in God and his gospel. We want we don't want to manipulate you to a particular response. We want to present Jesus and his gospel and all his and its glory. And we want you to see the Spirit. We want to see the Spirit work out a response in you as a result. That's what we want. Second, it changes our body life, our body life. We trust in the power of the Spirit over and above the promotion of activities. I'm not saying we don't promote activities. Certainly we do. You just heard me do it this morning. You see me do it every week in a newsletter. We trust, however, in the power of the Spirit over the promotion of activities. We want to build the kind of church life and activities that promote spiritual growth, for sure. However, we absolutely believe that growth will not take a place, will not take place as a virtue of good activities. And further, we do not believe it is the job of the church to become as good as the secular world in promoting activities we encourage you to participate in. Now, I'm not saying we should be poor communicators and that if anything's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. I'm not saying that. I am saying that we do not gauge, we do not gauge our spiritual growth on our ability to turn people out to activities we offer. We do not gauge it that way. We believe that spiritual growth is an outgrowth of the work of the Holy Spirit Certainly, you have to be putting sin to death. However, we believe it's God's Spirit working in Christians so that they are, in fact, putting to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8 says this. I've been walking through this passage, so I won't spend much time here. But listen to what it says in verse 13 and following. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's one group of people. But if you live according to the Spirit, 
But if by the Spirit, excuse me, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's Christians. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you hear that? If you are a Christian, you're putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. How, do I, how does Paul know that? Because all who are led by the Spirit, thus putting to death the deeds of the body, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's the deal. God's Spirit has come and applied the gospel to your heart so that you believe. And when you believe through faith, you are adopted as a child. God's love is demonstrated to you. It's poured out into your hearts, Romans 5, 5. And God gives you a corresponding love for him by which you cry out, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says. God does that in you. And when he does that in you, you know you're a son. And when you know you're a son, you don't respond to putting to death deeds of the body because you're afraid of the judge. You respond to putting death the deeds of the body because you love the Father as a son. That's a work the Spirit does in you. Those who are putting death the deeds of the body are doing so by the Spirit. Here's the point. We believe membership is important. That's why we had the membership induction this morning. That's why we have the classes We believe it's important because you learn who we are and what it means to covenant with this body to encourage one another to love and good deeds. We believe in small groups because this is the primary context in which this encouragement is taking place. We believe in leadership development so that we can have men in place who are shepherding our members so they encourage one another in holiness. We believe in training you to counsel one another so you can learn to encourage and rebuke one another well in particular areas. We believe in church discipline, and you're going to like this, so that we can love one another aggressively, as aggressively as is necessary to help one another be restored to the body. However, however, we think all of these activities, all of these activities are secondary and can even be unhelpful if, they're procla- if they are not proclaiming to you the gospel. If they are not opening the word, if they are not bathed in prayer, because none of them can serve to change a person in whom the Spirit is not at work, and the Spirit works through the means the Spirit has given. And he gave us a word, and he gave us prayer. These are the means to the end of seeing our hearts changed so that we glorify Christ. Third, pastoral ministry pastoral ministry changes the way we see what it means to be a pastor. Did you hear that? And what we hope you look for from your pastors. Someone always complains. You guys ever notice? Someone always, and it's usually me or you, I'm just going to blame us all. Someone always complains that their church is not doing enough. You guys ever done that? Anybody guilty in here besides me? The church is just not doing enough. You know this happened to the apostles? The gospel was starting to go forth in Acts powerful, unbelievable things were happening and people started complaining about the apostles. You know, The apostles. Think if your pastor was an apostle who wrote the Bible, right? That's a pretty good pastor. Full of sin, apparently, if you read their stories, but still, nonetheless, far better than the full of sin pastor you currently have, 
And look at what it says in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, church was growing explosively. We're all afraid of megachurches, right? Megachurches are bad. Ooh, megachurches. These churches had like 20,000 people in them. Okay? Goes on. Now they had an incredible small group ministry in the homes, but you understand the point. Disciples are increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists. That's the Greeks. Greek Jews mostly, okay? Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And other, here, here come these women and they say, hey, you know what? We have a critique of the church here. Our widows are being neglected. That's a pretty strong critique, isn't it? You're doling out food and the poor, the poor women that are our widows, they're not getting helped. Your church needs to get on the ball. So what happens and the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should get up, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And he goes on and on. Here's the point. The apostles understood that their primary calling was to preach the word, was to pray. That was their primary calling, not to run programs. Understand? Did they think programs were unimportant? Certainly not. They were important. What did they do? You're right. This need needs to be taken care of. We need a program to help these women out. So we're going to set a program up, but we're not going to do that work. We're going to appoint men who will do it because we need to preach and to pray. So they preached and they prayed. Our pastors need to be committed to the same. In fact, you should require this of us. You should hold us accountable to it. Satan would not love nothing more than to see me or the guys who are the elder, going to be the elders of this church get distracted from the primary means God uses for me to train you so you can do the work of the ministry for the increase of the holiness of God's people for his glory. Sadly, too many people want their pastors to act more like a cruise ship director than a spiritual leader. And we didn't name this church the Pacific Princess, did we? We named it Sovereign Grace for a reason. I exist to equip you for the... I exist to equip you for the work of the ministry. So you, if you see an area that needs to improve in our ability to serve one another, perhaps God is showing you that area because he's calling you to do something about it. Maybe the fact that God has laid on your heart an area where we should serve better in this church, maybe he's laid that on the heart, not so that you can bring it to me as a complaint, not that you people do, and I don't, I'm just telling you this for the future in case more complainers come in, but <laughs> you don't. You guys are great. But if God's laying it on your heart, you know, don't bring it to me. Maybe you should start thinking about, Lord, do you want me to turn this into a ministry for this church? This is an area we could improve. Maybe you're giving me this, this desire so that this church could improve this area and I could be a part of that. We encourage you, in fact, we implore you to use your gifts for the building of the body, which so many of you are already doing. 
You should be pushing your elders, however. You should be pushing your elders. It's me and the guys that are in training right now. You should be pushing us to pray more and preach more. And if you see me out running activities, you should encourage me to get back in my study and pray. Let me demonstrate to you the importance of preaching. Turn to 2 Timothy, and I'm going to finish here, and the guys are going to come up and sing. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's right before Titus, which is right before Hebrews. So if you've gotten to Hebrews or James or any of that, you've gone too far. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to actually start in chapter 3, verse 15, or excuse me, verse 14. But I want you to hear this because the command to preach is probably the weightiest. I know, in fact, is the weightiest command given in Scripture. Look what it says in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. He learned it from his grandma and his mom, by the way. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament in this case, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Why does he want to do this? All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. How is the man of God, that's you, how are you competent, trained for every good work by Scripture? Therefore, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Hear that command? Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's a pretty big charge starting off, isn't it? Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. If I or any man walks into this pulpit and dishes out some weak sauce, 20-minute, three points in a poem or does some stand-up comedy routine that's disconnected from the text and doesn't take seriously the weightiness of the gospel, or preaches some great exegetical masterpiece but lacks fervor and passion. In other words, as the Puritan said, he's got all kinds of light, truth. He has no heat, passion. If I or someone else walks in the pulpit and do that, you should shout, You should proclaim from your seats back to the study, back to your knees, and stay there until you can walk into this pulpit ready to explain the text with clarity, ready to preach the gospel with zeal, ready to rejoice in God and lead us to do the same. We don't just want you to do this. We need you to do this. Back to the study and back to your knees until you are so consumed with the gospel that it's like fire in your bones and you can do nothing else but come out here and preach. 
back to your study until that happens. That is what a church that believes in a culture of grace that comes from God's word and through prayer is about. That's what they push after. That's what they're excited about. They want to hear the gospel because they need it. And so they send their pastors packing to go and get on their face and bring the gospel to them so that they can be thoroughly equipped for every good work so that God is glorified. Let me pray. Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful for your grace, for your gospel, for your word where you have so clearly proclaimed it. We are thankful that you have called us not just to be saved as individuals, but that you have called us to rejoice in Jesus Christ as a church, as a local body who cares for one another. We're thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would build a culture of grace into this church that we would be in love with and rejoicing over your gospel, that we would preach it, that we would admonish one another with it, that we would pray in light of it, that we would rejoice because of it, that we would sing it, that we would know that everything we do for your glory is motivated by the power of your spirit working in us through our reception of your gospel of grace by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The guys are going to come forward and serve you communion. If you're a believer, this is a time for you. Um, If you're not a believer, you just let it pass.